Hello and welcome to Pieces of History. My name's Colin McGrath. Each week I'll be delving into some renowned and lesser known events throughout history. This week I'll be looking into the Indrangheta, a criminal organisation with origins in South East Italy that have been responsible for the importation of illegal drugs, arms trafficking, extortion, contract killings, political bribery, prostitution and art thefts to name just a few of their activities. The Mafia, a catch-all term for several secret criminal organisations with roots spread throughout Italy, has a strict membership policy which only allows individuals entry through having a blood relation already in the organisation or being invited to join having completed certain tasks to prove their worth. Cosa Nostra, meaning our thing in Italian, is a name given to the Mafia which dictates that members must keep their affiliation secret from their immediate families and that any information regarding the affairs of the organisation is also kept hidden. The Mafia has been able to gain power throughout the decades by having close links with companies, trade unions, political parties or individuals throughout these organisations. The reason for the Mafia being able to survive economic turmoil and infiltration by police is their diversification into different industries. They have been able to get into protection, real estate, farming, gambling, prostitution, drug dealing, smuggling, sport, finance and construction to name just a few. In all of Italian history, no other illegal organisation has been as powerful, well organised or as successful as the Mafia. The Mafia itself doesn't control any territory, yet can operate as a fully fledged nation with a leadership hierarchy, rituals, international laws, treaties with other organised groups and a tax for the people it controls. This tax, called a piso, covers small traders to large organisations to thieves and robbers operating on the streets. In a juxtaposition, they could protect a shop owner while also protecting those who could potentially break in and steal from the shop owner. The main function of the Mafia is to first and foremost make a profit, and the source of their profits, from their origins to the modern day, comes in the form of intimidation. Protection rackets allow them to buy politicians, police, lawyers, judges, government officials and journalists. The Mafia intends to infiltrate every aspect of life in the area in which they operate. As John Dickey writes in his excellent book, Cosa Nostra, quote, The chief demands that Cosa Nostra makes of its members are that they are to be discreet, obedient and ruthlessly violent, end quote. Dickey goes on to say, quote, How could an illegal organisation remain so powerful and so difficult to understand for so long? Part of the explanation is the lack of evidence, end quote. Due to the sheer power that the Mafia yield, be it through intimidation or control over police and the political system, it has been hard for law enforcement to convict many members of the organisation. The Mafia has a stranglehold over the regions that it controls. Heads of families rule with impunity for decades at a time through years of omerta, the famous code of silence demanding extreme loyalty for its members. Those who break omerta, called turncoats, or otherwise known as rats in American slang, can face torture and death, and this can even stretch as far as their relatives who can get caught up in the act of revenge. The act of murder is in a sense one of the reasons why the Mafia has been so successful in keeping in the shadows for so long. In the organisation, members learn that it's best not to speak out of turn or get involved in idle gossip. The language of the Mafia is different from any other as they speak in codes, hints, stories and stirs. Who knows who could be listening in another room or in the end of a phone? So who are the Indrangheta? Where do they come from and where have they flown under the radar for so long? The group have their roots in Calabria in southern Italy. If you look at a map it is situated at the toe of the country 
a long and narrow peninsula which stretches from north to south for 248 kilometers or 154 miles with a maximum width of 110 kilometers or 68 miles. The area is mountainous and hilly with a small percentage of flatlands. It is separated from Sicily by the Strait of Messina where the closest points between the two islands is only two miles. So where does the name come from? The word itself comes from Greek meaning heroism and virtue. It can also be translated to a courageous and brave man. But why Greek? Calabria has an ethnic Greek community of people called the Gurko, also known as Grigani. The group have lived in the area since the Greek colonisation of southern Italy in the 8th century BC. They have integrated their identity, heritage, language and distinct culture with the Calabrians for hundreds of years and it was this mix of Greek and Italian dialects that the organisation took their name from. The Andrangheta came from a place where corruption was rife before they even came into existence. Local politicians and their relatives would siphon off land and timber for themselves. Grain banks created to lend seed corn and money to the poor for planting only served as a source of credit for the rich. Unfortunately the government in Rome allowed these abuses of power as corrupt local mayors gathered votes for the ruling national factions. During the time when organised crime was on the rise in other parts of the country, Calabria was quiet. In the 1860s and 1870s, reports of crime stemming from the Camorra was hitting the headlines. The first signs of activity by the group only came to light in the 1880s. The first official report stated that a nucleus of mafiosi and Camoristi surfaced from Reggio Calabria, a town situated on the slopes of the Aspermonte, a long, craggy mountain range that runs up through the centre of the region. In the shadow of the mountain, the Indrangheta was born. As this new gang came to be known by police and magistrates, they were given the name Peach Otteria. The reason behind the name comes from the southern Italian name for lad. It can also be translated to lads with attitude. The first members, it seems, were herdsmen and farmhands. Unfortunately, these lads with attitude didn't make much of an impression as there's not enough surviving evidence to explain how and why they came about. The first mention of the group comes from 1888. The local newspapers started to report razor slicings and ritual knife duels. The duel would eventually end up with a blood spattered loser and in true mafia fashion, when they were asked by the police who their assailant was, they wouldn't reveal who it was. Omerta was already in play. After these first reports, the ruffian problem began to escalate. Citizens were afraid to leave their homes, anyone who stood up to the gang were on the end of a razor blade and extortion from gamblers and prostitutes began. Landowners were intimidated for money and there was threats to vandalism for their property. Police were threatened and a local newspaper owner received a menacing letter not to report their activities. These acts of violence not only stemmed from the lads of attitude, but they also had a female band of criminals called the Lasses with Attitude. This group of bandits directly joined their male counterparts in taking an oath to join the organisation by making blood come out of their little finger on their right hand as they promised to maintain secrecy. They dressed up in men's clothing to take part in robberies and attacks on citizens. It is reported that some female members would instruct male relatives in the organisation to carry particular acts. Unfortunately, there is not a lot of archive material about these lasses, but it seems as though they had a pivotal role to play in the organisation from the very outset. The gang became more formalised as the 1880s turned into the 1890s. Many of the leaders were indoctrinated and made in the prison system. Francesco Lusato, capo of the Palma area in Reggio Calabria, came out of prison with his status in the society already established. The Bacotti were becoming even more organised and well known in 1892 as 150 men were tried in court for various acts. 
The group tried to silence witnesses by killing one and threatening many others. Surely if a gang had recruited so many members and created so much trouble, the local authorities would have clamped down before it got out of hand. Well the answer is, they didn't. In 1893, auxiliary policemen sent a letter to a local magistrate to inform them of a, quote, a terrible sect of so-called mafiosi within the region, end quote. This letter was ignored. The group then began to pick up the pace of their recruitment on lawlessness. During the 1880s and 1890s, Italy had gone through a series of economic events which would shape the country over the next few decades. A building bubble burst, a recession was on the horizon, several banks failed, and into this vacuum, criminal activity throughout the country was on the rise. The Indrangheta were only getting started. Things turned around by the end of the century. The Bank of Italy was founded, Fiat was established in Turin, and Pirelli started churning out tyres in 1901. Society as a whole was changing. Cars and electric trams ran on the streets. Bars, football stadiums and cinemas were filled. Literacy rates were on the rise, and more and more people got the right to vote. Unfortunately, all this happened in the northwest of the country and the people of Calabria were left behind. By the end of the First World War, the organisation was still working in Calabria and flying under the radar of law enforcement and government authorities. Italy came out of the war on the side of the victors but was on the brink of falling apart. There were deep divisions within the country and from these cracks fascism emerged. 1922 but with it a new Prime Minister in the form of Benito Mussolini. After removing all political opposition through his secret police and outlawing labour strikes, Mussolini and his followers consolidated their power through a series of laws that transformed the nation into a one-party dictatorship. While Italy was in the group of Mussolini's grab for power, Calabria was being terrorised in broad daylight by gangs wielding knives, acts of sabotage, robberies and attacks on the police. During this time of political crisis in the country, the Picotti were growing in stature. After a few years in power, the newly installed government mounted an anti-mafia drive in the region. Arrests soon mounted up, with anyone suspected of being a member of the Intrangida, but like other drives to flush out local mafia, the operation failed and the organisations were once again able to flourish while the government had their backs turned. As the 1920s came to an end, the manoeuvres to oust the local hoodlums in Calabria disintegrated with a whimper, unlike in Sicily and other parts of the country. Operations were put into action to put an end to any criminality by the government. As John Dickey writes, quote, Looking back at the lads with attitude during the fascist era is like watching ants. With an energy that at first seems utterly myopic, each insect scuttles, explores, fights and dies. Yet somehow from their multiplied frenzy, the colony as a whole grows stronger and more numerous. End quote. The government had few factories in Calabria at the start of the 1930s. The archives from the time give a few examples of police successes. In 1931, the chief of police in Casorno reported that the mafia had, quote, almost been crushed, end quote, but it also stated that, quote, the impetus and primitive character of locals meant that there was still criminality in the region, end quote. One of the key feats of the crackdown happened in 1932 when five bosses of the Andrine were convicted. This seemed to be the main triumph in the war against the clans during the period. John Dickey writes, quote, Fascism's early operations against the Picotera were temporary successes at best. In fact, in some places, ironically, they merely created a power vacuum in which other criminals could wreak havoc. End quote. The peace against the gang and their activities quickened during the middle of the decade, which saw more and more suspects being exiled or brought to court. 
Unfortunately for the local police, the clans have bought the support of local judges and paid off witnesses and others willing to testify against members. The Andrangheta had infiltrated all areas of legal and political life within the region. During the 1940s, the government still could not get a handle on the situation in Calabria, as special commissioners reported that, quote, high numbers of citizens were members of criminal associations or had members who were members, end quote. These criminal associations in Calabria, that had emerged several decades earlier, had now grown to an organisation which had pathways of kinship spanning second and third generation members, including brothers, cousins and other relatives. When asked for information regarding activities of members, police were usually confronted with either silence or simply one word, family. The Second World War generally passed by Calabria. Italian forces mustered a token resistance and the region was lightly guarded by the Allies after the liberation. At the time of the occupying forces, the Allied military government for occupied territories were unaware that the Entrangada existed in the area. As Italy went through the transition to democracy after the fall of fascism, the clans operated in the same way that they had done before the war, working in collaboration with local police to persuade judges that they didn't exist. Successful governments were happy to bank votes of Calabria's mafia-backed members of parliament and ignore their criminality. As the 1940s made way for the 1950s, Calabria remained Italy's poorest and most neglected region. In 1951, a government report stated that 869,000 Italian families had so little money that they never ate sugar or meat. 744,000 of these families lived in the south of the country. The Italian authorities at the time believed that any criminality stemmed from poverty and primitive peasant traits which magnified itself through isolated episodes of violence. As the Indrangheta became more organised, they needed to structure themselves as more and more members joined. Unlike the Sicilian Mafia and the Camorra in Naples, the Indrangheta did not follow the traditional pyramid structure but tiered horizontal membership. The organisation is essentially a loose confederation of about 100 organised groups called Kosh or Families, each of which claims sovereignty over a town or village. These families then break down each area of which they control into Indrina, districts and towns and villages. Membership for each family is usually through blood ties and the same lineage. New members can only join through either having relations in the organisation or through marriage. Marriage is usually to cement relations between each Indrina and to expand membership of territory. When a clan is prosecuted for crimes, the same surnames can be seen on the indictment as the clans can be so tightly knit by blood ties and marriage. A typical kosh or family is made up of rank and file members starting with new recruits or the honoured youth. Once they have been able to prove themselves, members can step up to Picado or Lad. The third level of the structure is called Vangelista or Santissa. The final and highest level is a Padrino or Godfather. The highest reaches of the organisation are mainly there to resolve disputes rather than rule over the rest of the organisation. It's more of a passive role. The proactivity of the organisation, the enterprise, rests with individual clans. You can't cut off the head of this snake. Simply put, it means that whenever you take down one family, another can move into its place. During the middle half of the 1950s, violence in Calabria escalated with buses and cars being hijacked in the region, extortion payments were demanded of farmers and factory owners, and witnesses were intimidated into silence. One member walked up to a police officer in one town and shot him in the head, knowing that he wouldn't be identified to the authorities. The cogs of government were slow to turn their attention to the violence in the south. 
The Ministry of the Interior in Rome received reports from the Prefect of Radio Calabria stating that, quote, a vast network of underworld affiliates were able to avoid prosecution due to a murder and to the silencing of witnesses, end quote. In 1955, action was taken in the form of the Marzano Operation, employed by the Christian Democrat politician called Fernando Tamburoni to finally eradicate the gang problem. The operation didn't get off on the best of footing as officers tasked with carrying out their duties faced a lack of dogs, bicycles or radios. Some who were recruited to police the area didn't even show up for work. Tamburoni was kept in the loop about the various successes in the operations, a few arrests here and there, and exaggerations on the popularity of the task force in the region. Unfortunately for Tamburoni, the operation failed as corruption was entrenched through every level of Calabrian police enforcement, judiciary and even at national governmental level. Fifty days after the beginning of the operation, the police chief in charge left Calabria for good. It wasn't as if the authorities didn't know there was any criminality and clans running the area, as three months before the beginning of the Morzano operation, a notebook was discovered detailing information of the organisation along with rules for members to follow. Extortion rackets and the culture of vendetta were well known to police. They just didn't think that any of this information gleaned from intelligence and reports on the ground warranted any further investigation. During the operation, journalists descended on Calabria and it was through their investigations that they finally had a name for this group of people who were causing the crime wave, the Intrangida. It was the first time that this name appeared in print and the first time that the people of Italy knew there was a problem in this forgotten part of the country. As the 1960s and 1970s came into view, observers claimed that a new modern mafia had sprung into existence. No longer were they rural-based criminals but had spread their tentacles into the cities and towns throughout the country. The new mafia was young, educated and more business-like in their criminality. They were much more of a gangster manager. The Andrangheta had adapted into different industries such as construction and tobacco smuggling. The group came into view on a national level in 1973 as they entered the world of kidnapping. One of their first targets was as high profile as they could have got, John Paul Getty III, the grandson of old tycoon John Paul Getty. Clans from the region near San Luca began kidnapping wealthy people and members of their families in order to gain funds to diversify into different markets. The $2.7 million that the group were able to make from the kidnapping was used as capital to gain entry into the international cocaine market. The drug trade promised profits that were much higher and most importantly, reliable. But it also necessitated building a tighter, more efficient form of the organisation. During this time they broke out of their original mould of a horizontal family-based clan into a pyramid-like structure similar to the Sicilian and the Camorra Mafias. This period of expansion allowed the group to take on new members and with the new structure in place they were now able to spread internationally. By the turn of the 1980s the Andrangheta had now transformed into a multinational corporation. They had moved from protection rackets into a multi-billion dollar international business based largely on the drug trade. In 1982, they had unleashed brutal gang wars with murders and killings ranging in the hundreds. They infiltrated Italy's banking system, exploited the weaknesses of international institutions already undermined by years of corruption and political stagnation. That year, Italy's top anti-mafia fighter, Carlo Alberto Talla Chiesa, and his young wife were gunned down in Sicily only four months after he was sent there to clean the region up. This forced the government into action when special powers were given to his successor, Emmanuel de Francisco, to combat organised crime. Parliament speedily approved the new legislation. 
For the first time, membership in a Mafia clan was a crime. Investigators were given unprecedented powers to explore suspects' sources of wealth and influence. The estates of suspects or their relatives could be confiscated if they couldn't show the legitimacy of their provenance. Magistrates in Rome estimated that the crime's dealings represented at least 4% of the country's gross national product at the time, roughly $11 billion. And with these massive sums at stake, gang wars erupted throughout the country. It was estimated that a thousand people were killed in the first opening years of the 1980s. By the time the 1990s came round, the Indrangheta were out in the open and well known to authorities throughout Europe. This notoriety was enhanced by the San Luca feud between the Strango Nerta and Pele Vorta Romeo clans. The feud began after a fight at a carnival which led to two members from the Strango Nerta being killed. These killings then began a vendetta between the two groups with tit-for-tat killings ending with four others being murdered in the space of an hour in May 1993. After these events, one of the leaders of the organisation, Antonio Nerta, imposed a peace with the help of the Di Stefano clan from Reggio Calabria which held for some time. Unfortunately the feud resumed in 2005 as Domenico Gorgi of the Strango Nerta clan killed Salvatore Fafuzzoli, a relative of the Pelle Volter clan in an honour killing. The reason behind the killing? Fasuli threatened Georgie's girlfriend. These events then spiralled out of control with Georgie fleeing to Piedmont. The family of the murder Fasuli took their anger out on Georgie by killing his brother. The feud was then stepped up as another six more murders and eight attempted murders in Calabria were attributed to the feud over the next few years. The feud then had a dramatic climax on the 15th of August 2007 when six members of the Pele Romeo clan were shot dead in their cars in front of a pizzeria near the train station of Duisburg in western Germany. Of the six who were murdered, five were from San Luca, with one being 16 years old. One of the murdered men, Marco Marmo, was seen as responsible for the murder of Maria Strangelo, one of the six casualties from the feud. It is rumoured that the men moved to Germany to distance themselves from the killings. In total, 70 shots were fired by the gunmen into the cars of the six men. This act of violence was the first time the group had made their presence felt outside of Italy. Italian police drastically heightened security measures in San Luca as a result and arrested over 30 group members including Giovanni Luca Nerta. Nerta's rival Francesco Volti was arrested on October 12, 2007. German and Italian police cooperated and four members of the Stranglo Nerta clan were arrested in 2007. The main suspect of the shooting, Giovanni Stranglo, was able to escape. Police concluded from the telephone surveillance that the entrangled clan bosses had negotiated a ceasefire near the sanctuary of Our Lady of Pelosi in Aspermonte, a traditional meeting place of the Entrangada. According to prosecutor Nicola Garati, the elite bosses of the Entrangada imposed a peace directly after the Duisburg massacre. On March 12, 2009, Dutch police arrested Giovanni Stranglo and his brother-in-law Francisco Romeo in an apartment in Diemen near Amsterdam after German police learned that they were hiding their following clues found in Nerta's flat after his arrest. During the trial in 2011, the prosecution said that there was a, quote, state of war, end quote, between the two clans. Evidence collected by phone taps, interceptions and declarations of turncoats showed that the instigator of the attack was Francisco Pele, also known as Siso Pakistan. The trial concluded on July 12, 2011, with eight people getting life imprisonment for their roles and three other people convicted and sentenced to terms ranging from 9 to 12 years. 
the incident provoked people in Germany to come up with a Mafia Nang Danke movement, or Mafia No Thanks, inspired by the example of the anti-mafia movement in Sicily. Aside from the San Luca feud that spanned the 1990s and into the mid-2000s, the organisation seemed to be growing from strength to strength. Calabria was still an outpost from which the Indrangheta could work with impunity, as one diplomatic cable from the US consulate in Naples sent to the State Department at Washington stated, quote, No one believes the central government has such, if any, control in Calabria. End quote. The cable went on to compare the region to countries such as Somalia, Haiti and Afghanistan. Quote, if Calabria were not part of Italy, it would be a failed state. End quote. With this lack of scrutiny from law enforcement or government, the clan spread globally. They entered the cocaine market by using links to gangs in Mexico and Colombia to traffic the drug from South America to Europe. The organisation had a swift rise in importation and exportation of illicit drugs as investigations into the Entrangada claim that they now control 80% of Europe's cocaine trade. From these illicit dealings, the leaders have been able to invest their money into the best lawyers, tax consultants, bankers, doctors and send their children to the best schools. Their involvement in the cocaine trade has allowed the group to invest and diversify into other markets such as arms trafficking and extortion rackets. Farming, a traditional industry in Calabria, has now come under the jurisdiction of the clans. A farmers group estimates that at least 5,000 restaurants in Italy are in criminal hands and that the so-called agro-mafia business including harvesting and distribution, is worth about 21.8 billion euros a year. Their power and strength has gone to such lengths that estimates put their earnings at between 50 billion and 100 billion US dollars a year. Other reports claim that they made more money last year than Deutsche Bank and McDonald's put together, with a turnover of 53 billion or 44 billion. A study by the Demoscopia Research Institute stated that drug trafficking brought in an estimated 24.2 billion euros and illegal garbage disposal was earned 19.6 billion. These are obviously vast sums of money, but we need to realise that the figures quoted are simply guesses and no one truly knows how much they make each year. You can see why it can be difficult for prosecutors the world over to make a case against any individual or group suspected of illegal activity. With all of this wealth gained from many different illegal sources, the organisation needs to ensure that their money comes out clean on the other side. It has become so good at money laundering and its penetration of the financial markets that other major organised crime groups ask the Entrangheta to watch their cash as well. They own businesses and it funds political parties all over the world. The secrecy to the organisation means that it can be difficult to pinpoint the true extent of all of its operations. Just before we finish off on the Entrangheta, I'd like to look again at the Code of murder and the silence that the group is able to wield over its members. In Italy, Tunkouts are known as pentiti, or the repentant ones. They are members who, after being arrested, break the omerta, or vow of silence, and tell all. They become key witnesses for the prosecution. According to statistics compiled by the Italian judiciary, until 2008, there were about 1,000 pentiti affiliated with the Sicilian Cosa Nostra, and 2,000 with the Camorra in Naples. For the Indrangheta, it's a different matter. The FBI estimates that membership sits at around 6,000 for the group as a whole, and how many members have turned? 42. Andrangheta do not taint the blood of their families through betrayal, even now the organisation is tightly knit by kinship. In a bugged conversation in 2010, clan members were heard discussing what they, what they call the principle of the line. Simply put, 
The rule is that the son should inherit from his father is unbreakable. Now as it was whenever they first came to light on the slopes of the Aspermonte in the 1880s, the Indrangheta still keep everything in the family. Thanks for joining me on this journey through the Indrangheta. I hope you enjoyed it. Some of the sources that I used for this episode include Casa Nostra, A History of the Sicilian Mafia, and Mafia Brotherhoods, Camorra, Mafia, Intrangida, The Rise of the Honoured Societies by John Dickey, and The Indrangida and Sacred Corona Una, The History, Organisation and Operations of Two Unknown Mafia Groups by Renate Sebert and Ercole Gap Perini. Pieces of History is written and produced by me, Colin McGrath. If you would like to hear more episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, and you can also get involved in the show by leaving comments and show suggestions on Twitter and Instagram at Pieces of History. Thanks for listening.